Hi everyone, thank you for checking into this week's latest episode of the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. It has been an emotionally difficult ordeal for all of us, as we are grappling with the severity of the coronavirus pandemic. It has been a challenge to continue the second season of the podcast. But along the way, I also realized how important it is to spend time shifting part of my focus away from the ongoing bad news that's been happening now as part of my own way of coping, but to also have an available outlet for those who are seeking a temporary distraction. I am grateful and so thankful for your support for this podcast and wishing you all the love and protection that everyone here deserves. So a month ago, I interviewed Salong Chun for this episode. He's a 1.5 generation Khmer American from Tacoma, Washington. He's an artist, a father of two, a social justice and community leader. He's a person that I have profound respect for in the last few years. His work includes highlighting important local artists in Tacoma, to being an outspoken community leader for the Khmer community, and most recently with his anti-deportation work that's been affecting the Southeast Asian community here and over in Tacoma. We spoke about his recent exhibition called Scars and Stripes, which centers on the Cambodian genocide, the U.S. refugee resettlement, and the growing deportation of Khmer Americans. We talked about the meaning behind his work through the Red Scarf Revolution and so much more in this interview. You won't want to miss this interview. Also, special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or follow them on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or on Facebook. Hey everyone, this is uh, Randy from the Bunby Chronicles podcast, and so today I am here with a special friend of mine who I've been very fortunate enough to know the past few years. His name is Salong Chun. So Salong, how are you today? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on here. I think there's going to be a lot that we can talk about through your own experiences and some of our own recent interactions. And so uh, I wanted to kind of share with everyone how we both uh, came into contact. So I believe it was the end of 2016. I had just became a board member for the National Cambodian Heritage Museum, which is in Chicago. And I started to uh, look at promoting the museum because when I came on board, uh, most of our community members outside of Chicago weren't aware that we that our community actually has a museum that is dedicated to the memory of those lost during the Khmer Rouge uh, killing fields. So when I started going into other Cambodian Facebook groups, uh, Salong had reached out to me uh, personally and said that he wanted to connect. So we started connecting on Facebook and then uh, gradually we started to, uh, he started to introduce himself to other, he started to introduce me to other Kamai folks in Tacoma where he lives right now and also with other community members in California and other uh, communities 
and for myself, I started to introduce him to uh, members of our own community in Chicago. So it started to kind of grow into this idea that maybe we can potentially collaborate together. Uh, not too long after, we created the first ever national candlelight vigil uh, that the museum was a part of. Salang so was able to get folks from uh, Tacoma, Seattle, and then connected with other community leaders in Stockton, uh, Long Beach, uh, Kemeray, who is a board president for the museum, got connected with Lowell, Massachusetts. So we started uh, developing this event where we uh, honor those who were lost during the Khmer Rouge, but also those who had survived. And not just honoring though, not that not just honoring that horrific and remembering the horrific event that took the lives of two million plus people and started the mass exodus of uh, Cambodian refugees, but also to really highlight the generational struggles that have happened since then in our communities. And so um, seeing what uh, this work has done uh, as a community was very powerful to many of us who were involved in. And I'm very thankful uh, to you, Salong, for just getting the uh, getting it jump started for us. So um, that was an incredible experience, but also you have done other work during that period that would also help to elevate the voices of our own community uh, during that particular time, which we will get into. So with that said, I would like to see if you can introduce yourself, Salong. Yeah, thanks, Randy. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat's a little, you know, under the weather has been cold, probably not as cold out as Chicago is, so. <laughs> trying to recover from a cough and you know how that goes yeah <clears throat> so, excuse me so you have you're gonna have to edit that every time i do that out oh that's a little too much work for me so we'll just keep <laughs> a little raw there <laughs> um yeah my name is salong chen i'm was i grew up in tacoma um, i am a refugee from cambodia i came to the united states when i was two years old we landed in new york i stayed a couple months in san francisco and ended up in tacoma because my family was already up here and they they were the ones that helped to sponsor it here my aunts and uncles were fortunate enough to leave cambodia in 1975 before the Khmer Rouge took over so i was you know fortunate to have that support system when we first came here um <clears throat> i've been doing a lot of work um i don't know i don't know what to say i don't know what to say about myself but i i will say that it's, it's been a pleasure and honor to meet you randy i reached out to you when you uh, came on facebook i was really excited about the museum. I I had learned about the museum when it was first getting started, but I didn't know too much about it. Um, I did meet Anita and you know, Anita Ali, fantastic artist and friend of mine. Her parents was heavily involved in that when it first started. But, you know, back then the internet wasn't too um, accessible like it is today, so there weren't many articles or anything out. We just heard, oh, there's a Cambodian killing field memorial in Chicago. I'm like, how dope is that? With a small community like Chicago, and they have the first one in the United States. So I was already impressed. So yeah. to, to be able to reach out to you and connect that way is, is a huge honor for me because I've always wanted to work with an organization <laughs> or any entity like that because I've always been intrigued with the Khmer Rouge, 1975 to 1979. As a young kid, I really never knew about it. All I heard, the only thing I knew was from my dad when he used to tell me stories. He was in the Army. He used to run for his life and my mom escaping and walking to the, the refugee camps. But I never knew what that means as a kid. So when I, once I got older, I was able to um, and not not really until I turned 18, graduated high school when I it really caught 
my piqued my interest. I was, you know, before being a teenager and growing up, I was really just trying to find my way, find my identity, trying to figure out who I was, you know, whether I was American or Cambodian. I was stuck between the two. But once I started reading more about Popo, Khmer Rouge, how to take over, and they're the reasons why we why we in the states in the first place. It just I just got enveloped in the whole history, and I just started reading and reading, reading. I got I still got the books I've learned from, all the memoirs that you know Nguyen Chia wrote. I've read that. I think it was Ben Kiernan, another author that I, I used to read a lot. But I used to read a lot. I read so much about it that it just it just became a part of who I am because I really feel like it's really important to to understand the history. You know, as cliche as it may sound. You know, without knowing history, you never you don't know where you're going. So when you build the foundation on why we're here, it's because of the atrocities of the Vietnam War, how it spilled over here. It helps you understand who you are and it helps define you as a person. And then when you really try to um, <clears throat> extend your knowledge into the community, you define your whole community, too. It gives us a base or a foundation to work from, like. You know, we can't be too critical. I know growing up, we were really critical of ourselves. You know, we would compare ourselves to the other refugees that were here, like the Laos, the Thais, Vietnamese folks that was here. And they were way more successful than we were. And, you know, and we were kind of comparing ourselves to the the different communities and really didn't, we weren't in the the best of light, right? We were always, uh, I felt, me personally, that Cambodians were on the bottom rung of the ladder. And um, I think it's because due to the lack of understanding of our history, the lack of um, uh, being able to share the history because of the trauma, like our parents really, you know, talked about it much. You know, they would, I would get pieces here and there from my mom, but it's never a whole complete story. So I never understood that. But, mm. you know, um, it, it's never going to leave me. I mean, this is part of my life. I mean, I was, I was I, I'm a result of that. We are a result of the Rouge. Mm. It's it's very telling, and thank you for sharing uh, a synopsis of you know of what your experience has been like the past forty one years uh, since <clears throat> coming to the U.S. And when I think of our own community, especially with the Cam- the Cambodian community uh, specifically, uh, you think of how the refugees who came in to the U.S. or to other parts of the Western world that there was so little time to adjust, right? There was no counseling. There was no way to process what had happened in Cambodia months, a few years before that, you know, with the civil war, uh, with being in the labor camps, seeing executions, seeing starvation on a daily basis, and then having to escape and then face the abuses and the attrition in living in the refugee camps to go into the United States. Um, I know that when my parents, my mom talked about her story, that once they came to Chicago, they started to go to work within like not even a week. It was just right off the bat. And there was no time to process this heavy trauma that they had just experience right and and i think that you know for those for kids who were born right before and then um after uh, they had resettled in our parents did not have time to cope with that history and also 
figure out how to live in the U.S. Right, and so yeah, absolutely there there is this there is this lack of the the absence of you know being able to process that trauma and how do we start to adjust to living in a new homeland and a lot of the Cambodian refugees who uh, resettled into the U.S. were placed into poor communities that did not have the resources uh, that other uh, white communities already have. So I was wondering about, uh, I know this kind of goes back to what you've already, uh, re this might be a regurgitation of some sort, so forgive me if I uh, go back to this, but when you think of the year 1975, what does that mean to you? And I know you've already shared at least a good part of that hmm. uh, question in your introduction. Well, to me, I mean, I wasn't born until 79, so not living through it, um, my, you know, my answer is just from what I've read, from what I understood, from what I understand. 1975 is just, you know, this beginning of the end, really. I mean, it started in the early 70s with the Vietnam War spilling over, but 1975... <clears throat> it changed the game because that's when the Khmer Rouge took over. Trump and everybody thought the Khmer Rouge were the good guys from, from, from what I understand. So I think just, just to me, that was just the beginning of the ending, the beginning of the, the, the turmoil and <clears throat> how it turned Cambodia upside down. It was the beginning of the abolishment of religion, you know, money, any Western society influence. Just all that stuff. So, I mean, it's hard for me to give you an opinion on what it is. But what it means to me is just it just means that the, the beginning of the destruction of Cambodia, the, the destruction of the arts, the culture, the people, you know. Um, to touch on Pol Pot, I think, you know, not to be a sympathizer, but he had too much pride. You, you know, you realize that a lot of dictators tout nationalism. Nationalism, yeah. nationalism, you know, our country, our country. But what I think he and a lot of other dictators fail to realize is that the people is what make the country. The country don't make the people. So when you're out here being paranoid, killing all these people, all the intellectuals, the artists, the filmmakers, the musicians, you're getting rid of, you're getting rid of the core soul, heart and soul of the country. And I think he failed to realize that. I, and to me, I can compare that to Donald Trump. If you could look at Donald yeah. Trump today... What does he tout? Nationalism. He goes out on stage and hugs the flag. And what he failed to realize is the, the people and diversity and the people that he's, um, you know, like being racist against is what make America great. You know, so I see a comparison between the two leadership and how they how they lead. If you think about Pol Pot, he was so uh, paranoid of the enemy. Everybody was Vietnamese Absolutely. soldiers, CIA, <laughs> the FBI. Look how Trump operates. He's. He's got people, he's so incompetent in his administration that he's got people leaking things all the time. So he's super paranoid. So that paranoia in the way the leadership, I see, I see a comparison. <clears throat> but anyways, let's not talk about that asshole. Yeah. <laughs> amen, to, amen to that part. I, I, I do want to touch on yeah. you, what you said earlier. I think it's a great point that our parents and grandparents came from a struggle, escaping the country, going to the refugee camp, and then... Getting coming to America is like coming to another refugee camp. You struggle after struggle after struggle. And what you said really um, resonated with me that they didn't have time to process anything. They didn't have time to heal. And there's adults that's alive today that has still hasn't healed. 
You know, they haven't yeah. healed from what they've been through with their children, and their children came here with nothing, committed a little bit of crimes here and there, and then they're still going through the trauma that was caused by the Khmer Rouge with the deportation. You know what I'm saying? So this is full circle, and we're still healing. 45 years later, we're still healing. So that it's, processing of that information is not an overnight <laughs> thing. It's still 45 years, and our, our people are still affected by what happened. And, you know... 45 years later, uh, we're still learning stories of community members, community members who have survived, who have been silent. And also what saddens me is uh, a lot of folks in our community, Vietnamese, Lao, Hmong, Khmer, uh, the children, the adult survivor, uh, the adult children uh, who did not live through that atrocity, they still don't have an understanding or they don't have the stories from their parents mm -hmm. because when we talk about to know histories, to know self and uh, know history with N-O means no self, there is something that's really lost in our DNA if we don't know what's happening and also the root of our parents' pain and how they project that onto us mm -hmm. and how that affects us as us growing up and as mm -hmm. being adults and the environment that we were living in too affected like for myself I grew up in a in a middle class community and <clears throat> had I lived in like places like Long Beach or in a Chicago uptown neighborhood it might have been a different story I might have been involved in a gang you know and I think mm -hmm. about how this does affect the trauma of our parents uh, experience did affect the way we grew up and how we behaved and how we behave with our own community members. So I wanted to kind of get a, I want to go into your upbringing and, and also how did your parents arrive into the Tacoma community mm -hmm. and what was the environment like for you growing up and what was your ex early experiences of your relationship with your parents like as well as with your siblings? Mm -hmm. I think um, overall, looking back today, compared to a lot of other people around me, my friends and my peers, I think I was very lucky and fortunate because I have a lot of family here in Tacoma. And that's why the main reasons why we moved up here. I have my aunts and uncles. I have a lot of cousins that were here and they were already established. So I, I was able to my parents were able to come here and find work on the farm. You know, like you said, they came in and started working right away. There's no time to kind of, you know, I'm going to take two weeks off before I start my new job type deal. They got here and started working right away. Um, Al Durst Farms out here in Puyallup was a, a huge, a huge um, turning point in our lives. They provided us with a lot of um, um, food and income. And then, you know, my dad would start mowing, mowing the grass, mowing the lawn. Um, we've always had a place to stay. I don't ever remember being homeless. You know, we didn't have a, our own home. We stayed with our cousins until we were mm -hmm. able to get back up on our feet. And not, not many people were as lucky as I am. And um, my upbringing to me, I think my biggest struggle for me that doesn't have to do with economics is just identity-wise. It's hard. It was try hard to figure out who I was, you know. No role models. Um, nobody knew what Cambodians were. Mm -hmm. They just saw us as Chinese chinks that eat dogs. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then going to school, you're learning all these American history, American tradition, American culture, American ways of living. And then trying to maintain that at home because our parents didn't speak the language. They didn't speak English. They didn't know Christmas and 
Thanksgiving yeah. when I was a kid, right? So, and it was hard trying to balance the two. I didn't know whether I was Cambodian enough or American enough, so I was kind of in between. And then I, I think I struggled with that a lot as as a as a kid and a teenager. Mm. And I think it's a very it's very true for a lot of us in our generation group here because because um, you're trying to assimilate to, to adapt to American culture. You're trying to go. Uh, you're trying to make friends with uh, your classmates, and you want to have an understanding of what Halloween is. You want to have and understand what Christmas is, and you want your parents to understand that mm-hmm. too, because if they don't understand it, then you know you're going to be left out from your mm-hmm. peers. Mm-hmm. So there's this yeah. constant fear of like, if I don't assimilate, then I'm never going to fit in with my peers. And also, like from our parents, you know, they push us to succeed and to do better. And mm-hmm. part of it was like, part of it also meant surrendering our own culture as an mm-hmm. exchange in order for us to survive. And so for myself, I couldn't speak Khmer, I couldn't speak Vietnamese very well because most of my focus was I needed to learn English well. Mm-hmm. I needed to do well in math. I needed to do well in science, but it was only possible if I can master the English language and that I did not have to carry an accent. Right. So, you know, the, the, yes, well, that there was some advantages of being successful academically it also in in a way affected people like us emotionally mentally and knowing that even in our own communities we will get reminded that we can't do this well we are starting to lose our own family's culture so there's a lot of shaming in our community at the same time because for the Khmer Rouge during that period the Khmer Rouge when cultures our own values and traditions were getting erased and then to see it being erased again by our mm-hmm. own uh, by by our own generation yeah it's disheartening i think it's hard for our families to see that and to see the fact that they can't you know teach their children how to dance they can't um teach their children how to properly read or write uh, Kamai. So mm-hmm. there is a sense of like guilt by the parents, but the thing is they don't have the resources or the time and energy to do it when they're working 60 to 80 hours a week, mm-hmm. making uh, minimum wage positions. So there's so much conflict. And because of that, you start to see those tensions between our parents' generation and our generation, the relationship between our families that come to head, come to head. I know I've gotten a lot of my, uh, my head-to-head conflicts with my own father. So mm-hmm. I was wondering about your relationship with your parents as you've gotten older and as you start to understand that the way that I was raised felt different from mm-hmm. my peers, um, non-Kamai peers, I should mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I think I'm I'm very glad I was raised the way I was cuz I'm, you know, I I think I was raised in two cultures and I think that's a huge privilege for me cuz there's some people out there that just know know nothing nothing but American culture, which I I think is a huge, huge disadvantage. Um I'm not saying I'm the most Cambodian dude. I'm probably the least Cambodian dude you ever meet, but um growing up with my dad and mom and they would instill things in me like, you know, Pumben and you know, you are too you pray, 
and you bring food out for the spirits. And I, I really take pride in that, although I don't really practice it as much as I should. But I, I do take pride in it because I had I was able to experience experience what my parents grew up experiencing. And um, but for me, I, I, I accepted myself as who I am. Like, I, I think, you know, during my high school years, sophomore, junior, senior year, when I discovered the hip hop culture, the music, and I really picked up on music and, and I, I really found myself through music. So I don't I don't know how to um, explain that better. But I think with me finding music, I really found myself and I was able to accept myself as as I am like I'm both I'm both Cambodian and both American I'm not you know I'm like in the middle of the two and there's a space between that I just kind of fit in and that's where I'm staying in um but as far as my parents relationship you know growing up was tough man when I was a kid my my dad you know he just came from a war and the only way he knew how to handle his emotions was you know being abusive, uh, disciplining, I would call it disciplining, but in today's standard, it'd be abuse, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I wouldn't take it back for anything, man. He set me straight. Uh, I understood his trauma and why he acted like that. And, you know, there's no hard feelings for me, man. I forgive him. I think he's one of the strongest person I've met. And he's, you know, he's grown a lot older and matured a a lot too, you know, and my dad and I still have a great relationship. Mm -hmm. My mom and I have a great relationship, man. I love my mom. She's the strongest person I know. Well, she went through not just the war, but with my dad as well, you know, going through yeah. her abuse through him too. And being, you know, you know how an Asian household is, you know, the man's always the man and you, you succumb or you submit to, to the man as a woman. So I, yeah. I kind of grew up seeing that too. And that, that, I mean, that, that taught me a lot. I learned a lot from how not to treat, treat a woman, I guess. <laughs> it could, yeah, luckily it could have gone, it could have gone the other way, but luckily for you, you know, you were able to uh, to grow from that experience and to learn to heal on your own, but also to still have that connection with your family and to understand their roots. And I, I think part of the idea of healing comes from understanding those roots, understanding their history, because for myself, it took me so many years to deal with my father's um, trauma and um, growing up as a teenager, I stopped becoming this obedient, shy kid, and I started rebelling against my dad um, in many ways. And Mm -hmm. I would also defend my mom. And as I look back, you know, my dad was also abusive. And then as I got older, when my dad and I would get into contentious battles, especially as I got taller, and my dad's a short man, Mm -hmm. once I got taller, I felt like I had power over him. Mm-hmm. And so I started to take on the behaviors of my dad. Yeah, and yeah. I was thinking to myself, "My gosh, I am turning into him. I am turning his bad qualities into my own bad qualities, and mm-hmm. it's toxic and it's dangerous." And that was hard to uh, come to terms with. And it wasn't until I had to actually learn about my dad's history and trauma and then work being a part of the community that i started to really understand and to start empathizing and sympathizing mm-hmm. with what he was going through and how to work with his anger because mm-hmm. his anger triggers my anger yeah so i think that a lot of times i see this in our own community you know you see uh our own community 
male community members get involved with gangs because there's this anger, there's this sense of isolation, this rejection from family and community. And where do I belong? You know, I don't belong with uh, with a predominantly white community. I don't belong within my own community in some ways mm -hmm. because I'm not an A student. I don't have the full knowledge of my family tradition. So there's this rejection. And I see a lot of that happening. And I was wondering, uh, from your own experiences growing up, did you grow up with many Kamai folks in your community? And yeah. And how did you work? How do you, how was your connection with them? Because your upbringing was in some ways, some parallel, there's some parallels there, but there's also some differences too. Mm -hmm. You had an establishment with your uncles and aunts there mm -hmm. already. And your dad basically kept you away from going outside of the house very mm -hmm. often. So I was wondering what that must have been like in your own interactions with uh, your Kamai peers. Mm -hmm. Well, um, where I grew up in the east side of Tacoma, it's called uh, the Salishan Projects. And it's still there, but it's not the same projects. They, they, you know, they, they demolished it and rebuilt it. But I mean, the, the neighborhood I grew up in was great, man. That's where they put all the Southeast Asians, Vietnamese, Hmong, Laos, Cambodian, Samoans, black folks, Hispanic folks, we were all in the same, the same hood, you know, so, so diverse. So I, there's all the Khmer people in Tacoma was on the east side. So I grew up with all the Cambodian folks. I'm still friends with all, all a lot of those guys today. If they're not dead or not in jail, I'm, I'm probably most likely still friends with them that were, you know, gang banging hardcore back in the day when I was, you know, when I was going through high school and middle school. I mean, I had friends in sixth grade that would bring guns into the classroom. You know what I mean? And be in a backpack and it'd be just a normal day. And my son's in seventh grade right now. I can imagine his friends or anybody with, with weed or guns. And, and that's just so normal. It's just so normal. You just went to school and smelled like weed. That was, the teachers didn't do anything. That's just how it was, you know? But luckily for me, I had a lot of family, all my cousins. I grew up with a really positive uh, role model in my life. My cousin Pratna, he was um, a couple years older than me. He got me, um, he's the one that taught me how to play guitar. So, you know, back then, grunge was super huge in Seattle yeah. with Nirvana, Pearl Jam, uh, Allison Chains, and uh, Presidents of the United States of America, all those bands. And, you know, that's what my older cousins listened to. So that's what I listened to, too. And I learned how to play guitar and um, discovered a keyboard. My cousin taught me how to play the keyboard. And I was just hooked. So during school, I was hanging out with all my Cambodian friends, right? After school, I picked up skateboard, went skateboarding with the white folks because my dad wouldn't let me hang out with Cambodian people mm. after school. You know, I said, I can't say, oh, I'm going to go to the park or go into the school to play basketball. I can't do that. I said, I'm going to go with my white friends to go skateboard. He'd be all good with that. But I still couldn't stay out late. You get out of school at three, I had to be home by six, get my Dang. homework done and do that. But um, most of the time, um, I wouldn't let be let out, man. So I would spend most of my time in my room listening to music and playing music, um, learning how to, learning how to um, program beats. And, uh, you know, back then I hated it. I hated my dad for doing that, for not letting me go hang out with my friends. But now that I look back, <laughs> I'm fortunate, man. I didn't get in too much trouble. But, uh, yeah, but my relationships with my peers, I was able to maintain a good relationship with them. You know, a lot of, back then when you were part of a group or a gang, they would, resent you for not hanging out with them they would say <clears throat> you're a sellout or you're not down mm -hmm. for the group you're not down for us you're not down for us 
I think I got lucky because I was really never down. I was just around. I was just always a little kid just around them. And, you know, during school, they would skip. I would never skip. I was always at school because my dad would just walk around the halls to make sure that school. He's really adamant about that. So I thank him for that. Um, I think um, a lot of his actions um, was was beneficial to me today. So, I, I mean, I thank, for, thank him for that. But before, but when I was going through it, I just hated it, man. I didn't, I didn't like him. I didn't want to be there. I just wanted to be with my friends. But, you know, in the longer run, look at me I, now. I mean, I'm one of the most privileged Cambodian dudes out there. You know, I got my citizenship in 2000. I don't have any criminal records. So I'm able, I think I'm in a good position to be able to um, advocate for the people that can't. I think that's just so commendable, and and I really appreciate what you've been doing, and you know, thanking, and also I want to thank your parents for raising you the way you are because you've done so many profound uh, work for the community and giving back, but also being a being a dad of two young kids. Uh, so it's it, it tells you, you know, what that experience uh, was like, and the intention for the good intentions for your parents led you to. Uh, to do this work and where it gravitated you as a as a person that you are today. Um, so I know when as you got into hip hop music, mm. I saw that you know learning about your work, you had also used that as an avenue to connect closely with the Cambodian community. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Was it something that also started to manifest itself during college? Because I know as you got older, your parents' influences started to become not as not as much of a strong hold on you mm-hmm. as it did prior to all of that. I mean, it's hard to escape your father in, in middle school to high school, but in college, where did you start seeing that transition where you started to use hip hop and as a way to connect with uh, your own community and also with your own self as an independent artist? Um, it, I mean, it just kind of man- manifested on their own, but before I answer your question, I want to jump back to, you know, hanging out with my friends and them joining gangs and all that stuff. I just wanted to put on the record that I wasn't able to join a gang, not because my dad was strict. That was one of the reasons. The other reason was I couldn't fight. And my friends knew that, so I was kind of useless already. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the honest truth. I, I can't fight. Did you, get I your, can't. did you get your butt Did you get your butt kicked? And they're like, no, <laughs> no, this, this guy can't do it, you know? <laughs> I've, been, I've been jumped a couple times as, you know, as a, as a kid and <laughs> You know, I'm just, I just can't fight. I don't like getting hit in the face. Um, I'll do anything to get away from a fight. And mm-hmm. the only fight I've ever really been in um, is just, it wasn't me. Every time I'd get in a fight, my friends would jump in for me. So mm-hmm. I've, I've been unscathed. <laughs> but anyways, uh, discovering music um, after I went to college. I went to college for broadcast communications after high school. I wanted to be getting whatever uh, whatever I was gonna do. I wanted to get into the music industry, so I was an overnight DJ for a college radio station, KGRG eighty nine point nine. Shout out to Green River Community College for putting me on. I was an overnight DJ for a whole quarter, two quarters. Played nothing but rock music, and um, and there would be this show, hip hop show on every Sunday called Ear to the Streets with a DJ Crush, and it's one of my favorite shows. Grew up listening to him. I was able to find him, meet him, and then uh, I was able to do the show with him for a quarter, which was a dream come true. And that just got me hooked. And then I started producing underwriting spots. You know, in college radio station, you can't do commercials. They call it underwriting. It's the same thing, just a different name. And I started editing 
commercials for the radio station, I was like, man, I like this a lot better than being on air. So um, at that time, my teacher was called Jim Campman. He was a really um, popular radio personality star, star in Seattle. He goes by the name of Campy. I don't know if he's still alive till this day, but um, I think I was 19 years old. He goes, so long, whatever you do, man, don't stop recording. And when he said that to me, it's like, you know what? That's the best compliment I've ever received up to that mm-hmm. point in my life. So I started researching and I had a cousin, my cousin playing a role again, that was attending the Art Institute of Seattle for a video production. And he said, yo, there's an audio production engineering program at the Art Institute of Seattle. You check it out. I checked it out, went up there for a tour. I'm like, I want to be here. Then the next year I quit Green River, went there. So I started going to school for audio production and engineering uh, around 2000, 2001 maybe. The internet's starting to get um, better. There's a site called Command Connection. Command Connection, it was like the first social media site before Facebook, before um, MySpace, before all that. It was, you know, made by a Cambodian dude. But um, that's why I discovered Pratch, Pratch Lee. Um, mm. There's this big article on him that he took Cambodia music scene by storm you know he brought rap and hip-hop over there they call it for dj and i started doing some research on him found out he was coming to seattle and it's really because of pratch meeting pratch where he kind of introduced me to the community and what rap can sound like because back then every every asian rapper that i encountered was really a gangster rapper you know that just was the culture the bay area movement was huge but it wasn't me, right? I don't, I don't gangbang. I can't fight. I've never shot a gun in my life, you know. I was more into like just rap and lyrics, and, and you know, I was big on Wu Tang, Nas, Mob Deep, huge fans. And then when I when I listen to Pratch, I'm like, no, this dude got some lyrics. And he 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 wasn't just rapping about the streets. He was rapping about Paul Boat, escaping the Khmer Rouge, and all that. I'm like, this is the shit that I want to do. So I did everything I can to meet him because. His first album, his first tape, mixtape, was all beats that's already been used. It's popular beats. And I'm like, yo, this dude needs some original beats. I got original beats. So we linked up around 2000, 2001, I believe. And we've just been doing music ever since. And, and, and because of Pratch, I connected the two, right? Music and community. You can make an impact on your community through this art form. Before, you know, hearing Pratchett's music and knowing Pratchett, I didn't have any clue or any direction on what I wanted to do. I just wanted to do, I wanted to be around music. I want to create music. I want to mix music. I want to play music. Whatever that had to do with music, I want to be part of it. Doesn't didn't matter what music, you know. I, I used to uh, do sound at a, at a blues um, bar in Seattle, Pioneer Square. I forgot what it was called. Um, when one of the engineers was from the Doobie Brothers, you know what I'm saying? So mm. I, I, I got a lot, I got to meet a lot of cool people going to, going to that school. And I was really into blues and rock music too. So, so that, you know, just kind of expand my, my palette per se. I do remember you went to Cambodia not too long after as like during sometime in the mid 2000s, if I'm not mistaken, oh, 2005. And, and was yeah. that your first time to Cambodia? Yep. Yeah, oh, five yeah. my first time, then I went back the next year. Oh, wow. And um, as an art, as a person who now became an artist uh, or a person who was uh, working on your art and then connecting with Pratch, 
what was the experience like to come into Cambodia? What were your expectations coming in? And what did you, coming out of that experience, what did you receive in return on an emotional, spiritual value? You know, I, I wish I had something better to say, but I don't. I went to Cambodia for the first time in 05 with my dad just to go see the family that haven't seen me because it's been, I don't know how old I was in 05, 25, 20-something years old. And, you know, I left when I was a baby. So that trip was more of a spiritual trip to kind of go meet the family that I haven't seen. But, you know, just being there for the first time, it really blew my mind. Um, things that we take for granted here just stood out. It, just, it was just amplified, you know, things like toilet paper, running water. Oh, yeah. The roads, you know, in 05, it was a lot different than it is now. But just those sure. little things, I, I think I was just trying to take in the differences in lifestyle and culture that I was raised upon to what I would have been raised upon. You know, I'm trying to, comp I'm always comparing it to like in America, this is that, and in Cambodia, this is that. But um, overall, it was a great experience. My first time there, I was like, man, I don't think I can live here. But in 06, I was like, I could probably live here, but still, I wouldn't. But I went back last April. I was like, man, I want to move back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. I've yet to visit that part of the homeland. Um, but I know when I came back to Vietnam like 10 years ago, at about your age, actually, um, it was so helpful to to start to connect to your own history. Mm -hmm. And you start to sense understanding of your own family for the first time. You start to get a better sense of the journey yeah. that your parents take that they, they took to get to where they needed to be so there was this full circle moment yeah. and i think it, i think for anyone who hasn't gone on that trip yet i hope that many of them can uh, do it on their own agency uh, so recently you've started your work called the red scarf revolution it is um part is a part exhibition which led to scars and stripes it is also a part historical documentation of the cambodian Cambodian American history through mm -hmm. your social media handle and also your own merchandise line. So I wanted you to kind of take us through the journey of the Red Scarf Revolution and okay. what does that mean to you as an artist? Okay. I hate to do this to you, but let me backtrack again. 05 was a huge year too because I've got, I don't know why I didn't mention this. Uh, when I was there with my dad in 05, um, I met all, a lot of family, but we were also there researching the story of Sin Sismud. I was mm. working on a film, a script, trying to get a treatment going. We got a script, but we spent a lot of time with the family. Uh, we started the Cincy. My dad and I was the one that started the Cincy Smut Association, which is still running today. Who is Cincy Smut to uh, folks who don't know who he is? Oh, he's 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 one of those. He's the legend, musician, singer, songwriter. He's the one that took the Western fusion of rock and roll. Calypso and fusion and put it together with Cambodian music because of the because of the Vietnam War the music came across the ocean too because the soldiers were bringing all these types of music and Cambodians not even just Cambodians Vietnam has an album called Saigon Rock and Soul which is dope um, they just took the influence of these um, new new style of music that they heard that the soldiers were playing and just put it together so Sinsi Smut is an all time legend like. Every Cambodian knows who he is. You know, everybody, every Cambodian that you run into that's from our generation knows who Sin Sin Smut is. And 
he's such so legendary that if you remake his song today, you become a popular Cambodian singer. Mm -hmm. That's how that's how impactful his music is. So um, I just wanted to tell his story. Nobody knows his story. There's rumors and rumors and rumors. But um, I was able to spend time with his son, his grandson, who just passed oh, away. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, man. I think my favorite moment in Cambodia in 05 with my dad was we were we were sitting with Cindy Simut's wife. Wow. Restaurant in a full moonlight, and and she never listens to his music. So wow. She doesn't. Like I don't know. His music. I don't know how she cannot escape his yeah. music though. No, but the restaurant we were eating at had his songs playing. Mm, oh my gosh, so she was, eerie. She was able to, you know, um, tolerate it because I was there with my dad, with you mm. know, uh, her son, and mm. it was it was. It's a great experience. Um, I wish I'd taken more pictures, but back then there was no phone cameras. Yeah, get camera with me, but it's probably my most favorite experience. I think that's just such an awesome, beautiful story to connect yeah. with his family, his surviving family members at that time. Because since he's Samut, as you just beautifully summed up, is Cambodia's uh, icon, forever icon. Him, Rosary Soti, uh, Panro, but mm -hmm. Since he's somewhat is is forever in yeah. our hearts, yeah. and his music still has immense impact to this day. So Sick, just yeah. to have that connection, that thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I don't story. I don't talk too much about it because it's very braggadocious. But hey, man, I'm on a podcast with Mr. Randy <laughs> Kim, so yeah, let it all out. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm honored uh, that you shared that story. <laughs> so I was wanted to get back to the red scarf. For yeah, evolution. sorry, man. Oh, no, it's okay. okay. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we talked about it being a part exhibition, which led to Scars and Stripes. Yeah. Uh, the historical documentation of the Cambodian, Cambodian-American history through mm -hmm. your social media handle, uh, which, you know, Red Scarf Revolutions on your Instagram and on Facebook, and also your own merchandise line. So I wanted you to be able to take us uh, through those, uh, through those okay. three part of your journey. I'll, I'll tell you where the name came from, if you don't. No, the Khmer Rouge, the Khmer Rouge, the symbolism of the Khmer Rouge back then was the red scarves, you know, the red scarves, the karma, that's what they wore with the black pajama uh, attire. And I, you know, before the Khmer Rouge took over, the karma has always been an integral part of the Cambodian culture, not necessarily the red one, but any color, you know, they use it as a scarf, they use it to hold their babies, to cover their faces when they're riding them with those. But it's just a huge part of our culture that I really think got stolen by the Khmer Rouge. Mm. You know, the, so that's why the name is called Red Scarf Revolution, because I'm taking the red scarf and to revolutionize it as um, to counteract and to do the opposite of what the Khmer Rouge was trying to do. They was trying to eliminate and destroy culture, destroy art. I'm trying to bring that back. But um, the, the name Red Scarf Re Revolution really came to me before I even thought about this being a platform for um, promoting culture and arts. I really wanted to start a, a band, a rock band, kind of like Rage Against the Machine. And I, mm -hmm. I, I try to come up with a, a really provocative name that doesn't have the word Khmer, Cambodian, Onko, because it's all played out. Uh, anything that has to do with Cambodia <clears throat> has those names, right? You got Cambodia, this, Khmer, that, Onko, that. I think that shit is corny. So I think <laughs> another way to kind of play with the Khmer Kaham uh, you know, they were the Red Scarf and, and you know, the Year Zero Revolution was Popo's Revolution. So I kind of 
you know, took that concept and and try to reclaim our scarves. So the Red Scarf Revolution is, you know, really provocative name. When I first came out with the brand as a clothing clothing brand, I got a lot of hate for it. A lot, of, rightfully so. I would be fucking pat pissed off. Did it come? So. Did it come from the younger folks of your own peers, or did it come from like? Uh, your parents uh, both um, I think, well uh, to be fair my parents generation was really a building I mean my parents didn't know what I was doing mm. but you know it came from uh, a lot of my peers a lot of peers that were in tune to who Khmer Rouge was they put two and two together I think um, the purpose was I, I didn't intentionally wanted to um, cause any um, resistance because I understood what it was. But if you don't understand what it is, Red Scar Revolution, you just take that name. That's mm. It could be offensive. You know, it could be offensive because these guys out here murdered two million people. And then here I, here I am talking about, oh, Red Scar Revolution. I, it, I, I see how people can perceive me as a sympathizer to the killer. But once I start explaining it, having a conversation around it, um, people start to understand and then it kind of manifested on its own. You know, it, it wasn't my intention to be like, oh, I want to talk about the Khmer Rouge. This is a way to get them to talk. I just wanted to be provocative. Mm. So it's really the people that received it that gave me the idea. So if you think about it, it's, it's the people's brand. That's how I see it. Because when I first started the brand, I had one t-shirt. I put online without any t-shirts and I saw like 15 the first day, you know, I was mm -hmm. using big cartel back then and I didn't have a t-shirt to, to send out. So I quickly found it just, it just so happened that my coworker I used to work with who quit because he broke his wrist playing basketball and has a t-shirt printing company. I just ran into his random Best Buy in, in Vancouver, Washington at the time. And so he mm -hmm. printed me some t-shirts for free. I was able to sell them and then like, yo man, this, this thing can really take off. So I started designing, but I want to be mindful with the designs. Everything I want to design has to do with our history and our culture. So the second, the first T-shirt is called, uh, I just made it for fun. It's called Can I Get an Encore with Encore Wood on it. Ah, love so, that, love play that on pun words. there. Yeah, play on words. Um, you know, Kanye. Can dude. I get an encore? Oh, do yeah. you want more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's a classic T. I haven't released it since. I might release it again soon. Oh, I would love to see but that. I'll send you. I, I still have a couple of those T-shirts and the, oh, the mock. I love it. It's very popular. It just, it just started selling. And I was like, yo, I could do something with this. So then I started designing more um, 1975 Khmer Rouge themed designs. Um, I have the Year Zero design that I have. And I have a design called the Anka. Whereas uh, the uncle would with eyeball, like the the pyramid with the eyeball on the um, um on the dollar bill, but I molded that because Anka was all you know they were all knowing entity that nobody knew who they were. They were just watching you. So I took that concept, uh, and then you know since he's smooth versus a T, I did some graphics with their faces on it. So the really the goal of Rescar Revolution is to bridge the youth. And the upcoming generation to the history, but not just by lectures or books, or like you know, or um, or being a guest speaker. So we're talking about it. I want them something tangible for them to grasp and hold. I and I, you know, growing up, really, in the skateboard culture and the hip hop culture, I saw an, I saw an avenue there, to to um to appeal to the youth with clothing, and the design's got to be, um, 
cool and not corny. I don't, you know, not corny subjective, but I've been pretty fortunate for the reception for Red Scar Revolution with the youth. It's been really good. It's been really surprising, impressive. And to me, I'm not trying to lecture you about the history. I just want to pique your interest enough so you can either we can have a conversation about it or you, or you go do your own research about it. Mm. But everywhere I go with a T-shirt that I've designed, everyone they ask me, what is that? Oh, sh shit, let me tell you what this is. Or who is that on your shirt? What does that mean? You know, that's what I want to do. And, and, and it's kind of the Red Scar Revolution platform kind of took off on its own. You know, it, it took a life on its own. And I was just, um, I, was, I was at the steering wheel, but the gas was... It's like on cruise control. It's going on its own. I was just kind of steering. Yeah, and actually, one of the shirts that um you gave me, uh, that really resonated a great deal with me, it was like the rainbow flag with the <laughs> with the Angkor Wat. Uh, instead of the star, instead of the normal American fifty stars, it's the uh, it's replaced by the um, the yeah. Angkor Wat symbol yeah. Yeah. and the rainbow flag. And for me, as a queer Southeast Asian American that meant a lot to me a great deal especially with the intersectionalities that played and this is a shirt that i will wear every now and then and i still get people coming up to me and what wardrobe does it's part of art it's it elicits Absolutely. conversations it, yeah. it elicits this talking point and and connection with folks too i mean i've seen this with kamai ninja i've seen this with uh b-side yep. who i'm a huge oh b-side is one of my favorites man b-side's one of my favorites actually i'm actually one of their uh i I like to brag that I'm one of their big customers because I do spend a lot of money uh, <laughs> on my Kermaz. I think I've gotten most of my Kermaz from yeah. B-Side, so shout out to them. And if you haven't seen B-Side or Come My Name, just look them up on Instagram or on, on social media because they got some wonderful merchandise that connects to our uh, stories. So, uh, But I was also want to talk to you about the Scars and Stripes uh, mm -hmm. exhibition that you did. And, and this also reflects back into the genocide, refugee resettlement, and deportation. There's like three parts to this. So I was wondering if you want to tie, how do, the, how do all of these three tie in together and why is the name Scars and Stripes? Oh, great question. Um, good topic. Um, just to go back on the, the flag design, um, I always do this, I'm sorry. But uh, the shirt that, um, that you got with the rainbow design, I really like that a lot because the original design was, is, black, white, and red. Um, the, the silhouettes of the Uncle Wood that takes place with the stars, there's 20 of them. It, it represents the 20 provinces in Cambodia. And then the four major crowns are the four um, red stripes. And, and then just the whole U.S. flag design is for the you know Cambodian-American diaspora. So I saw that and decided to change the red and uh, red and white stripes to the rainbow stripes for the pride because to me, Growing up, everybody had this command pride, you know, command pride. Oh, I got command pride. But what does that mean when back in the day when you had command pride, but you were shooting each other because they were in a different gang, right? So with this LGBTQ movement and my little brothers also, um, you know, part of that community, I took that same flag and put the, the rainbow colors to represent that. And um, my thing was like, I'm trying to redefine what command pride is. So we're mm. redefining <laughs> command pride. And, and bringing it to the modern state. So this is what Khmer Pride is. You feel me? Yeah. So. No. Thank you for that. And you know, going into the Scars and Stripes exhibition, 
that you did back in 2017. I was wondering what that process was like creating mm-hmm. this exhibit, especially now that it involves deportation, which, you know, we so when we talk about Cambodian history, we talk mm-hmm. about the genocide, and then we're starting to talk about the refugee resettlement, but the deportation is still a stigma, and we're mm-hmm. starting to see this um, surface more and more by the day here. And I think that, you know, that exhibit you did started that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in yeah. A public way, in a very public way, which I don't think had been done before. I, I could be wrong, but it felt like the uh, the dialogue needed to happen because it was always kind of under um, under wraps. And yeah, yeah, I think for a number right. of reasons. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, deportations in our community has been going on since the early two thousands, two thousand four, but it was just like one or two a year, and then two thousand sixteen. I curated an exhibition called the Scars and Stripes, not stars, but the scars. So the, the meaning behind that to me, um, it, it's, it's just the effects of the war, the Vietnam War, the Khmer Rouge, and, and, and the United States involvement, right? So it's the scars and stripes is that the scars that we continue to, to carry and the burden that we carry because of the war. And uh, to me, um, our history is like, a puzzle right our history our being our present and our future they're all puzzles pieces of puzzle that will go together so i started thinking um how how are we still affected today by this war first of all we're here we're losing our language we're losing our culture that's one of the effects not even that our parents are still traumatic you know traumatized by it they're not talking about it so we're even losing the history Mm -hmm. and then and then you know, back then when the Khmer Rouge took over, they separated our families, isolated people. You know, family wasn't allowed. Everyone was equal. And I, I, I correlate the family separation back then to what's happening today with deportation. So mm-hmm. I was able to um, secure a space, an art gallery. And then I started to work. And luckily, the Wing Luke Museum in Seattle had an exhibition that detailed the history of Cambodia. Just the history, though, the Encore Wat up to modern day, but they didn't really touch on a deportation aspect of it because, you know, like you said, no one was really talking about that yet. Because you think about 2016, we have we have the new president, right? Was that 2016? 2017. Uh, was when yeah. he got uh, inaugurated, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I did that exhibition in 2016 not knowing, the you know, that our community's deportation rate's going to spike up as much as it has. So it kind of was coincidental that I was bringing that topic up before the raids started to happen. So I'm, I'm, so me, personally, I was just trying to connect the dots. What happened in 1975, 8, 79, 80, 81, 82, 1990, what happened back then to get us to where we are now? So I, I started working backwards, deportation. These guys grew up in a social, economic, challenging environment. They didn't have their parents. Um, they didn't belong anywhere, so they kind of grew with each other, and that's how gangs started. And why did the gangs start? To protect themselves. We to protect ourselves, ourselves from the black community, the black gangs, the Mexican gangs, the Samoan gangs. As we, you know, Cambodians would get picked up, not even just Cambodians, Southeast Asians. You know, the Laos and Vietnamese and Cambodians were, a lot of them were uh, in the same gangs. Mm. And they had to protect themselves, right? So, they, so 
with that, they felt like a sense of belonging. So that happened. And then why did that happen? Because their parents were never home. They were trying to survive because, you know, they just got displaced from their home and they came here with nothing. So I kept working backwards. And then why did their parents come here <laughs> and get displaced as refugees? Because they were part of this uh, uprooting. They were uprooted because of the, the war, because of the Khmer Rouge. And I just kept going back. And then after I, I kind of understood that timeline, I just kind of wrote everything down and tried to make sense of it all. And then and just put it, put it all together. And I was able to curate artwork from around the world, actually. Um, I got a couple of paintings from New York, some from France, mm-hmm. some artwork from all the way, some, some Cambodian artists from Connecticut. So how do I get all this artwork and how do I piece it to make it make sense, you know? Can your exhibit still be seen uh, today? I know that that exhibit was only temporary at that time, but I, I believe oh. that that part of the exhibit was taken to, um, to Stockton. Stockton? Yes, yeah, I think Stockton. Yeah. No, Stockton. Okay. Stockton. The wrong yeah. ticket down to Stockton. But um, I still have all the pieces. And every every year in April, there's Cambodian event. Like, there's going to be an event this year in June commemorating the 45th anniversary. And then, you know, yeah. part of that exhibition, I still have it in my possession. It's going to be part of that. So it's it's now a moving exhibition. Mm. But it's not, it's not permanent anywhere. Like, if you wanted to bring it to Chicago, I could send all the panels there. But you'd have to... I would love that personally <laughs> it's just a matter of you know trying to get everyone else to make sure that it gets properly taken care of so yeah, I w- yeah. that was something that i've always wanted to bring in uh because it, it is a very important part of you know, what we're dealing with now right yeah and you know and, what's cool about part of the exhibition is um in here in tacoma I, I i feature a lot of community members or cambodian community that's grown up here all I did was scan the photos and put it on a panel, and that could be the Cambodian American part. Like, say, for example, if we were to do this in Chicago, what I would do or ask you to do is reach out to the Cambodian community there. Send me, you know, send us some pictures. We will. We'll, mm. We want to localize the exhibition. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I like that idea. So that, that way, the community is involved, and it's you know, there's ownership there. I like that idea a lot. So thanks for planting that seed in my yeah. head now so like that idea so um now when we're talking about the deportations and i think a lot of folks will ask us well they're not undocumented most of them aren't undocumented none of them are uh, like actually none of them are undocumented <laughs> no. but how does one get to deportation despite having some form of legalization i think that's what is the most common question and also within our own community mm-hmm. for a while you know the reaction would be like well they should have just followed the law you know that's their own fault um but well, that's the easy I, way to put it yeah yeah but i will say something and i thought about this as i was driving today um you know thinking about our interview i was reflecting back to my 14 year old self i was mostly seen as a good kid uh, mm-hmm. growing up in school but in my family, there was a lot of turmoil. And my best friend and I, that summer, we were getting bored. So we would go to this local Kmart and we would shoplift. I would shoplift cassettes, like, you know, one at a time. It was always gradual. Very one thing, one thing here. And I think because I was getting so bored of living this 
dull suburban life that I had to be subjected to. And I couldn't please my dad no matter how hard I tried. And I think that around that period, I started to feel a sense of angst and this rebellion. So I would do it. And also because my friend, best friend would do it and he would get away with it. I'm like, okay, I, I can get away with it. One time I got caught. I remembered, I'll never forget where the, the, the soft, gentle hand of a Kmart uh, uh, loss prevention person grabs my shoulder and says, come back with me. And I was like thinking to myself, oh shit, I'm going to get in trouble and I don't know what's going to happen to me. And I remembered being so terrified and I told him I've never done this before, even though I had done it for weeks. But I thought to myself, oh my gosh, this could really be the end of me completely. And I looked at what was going on and I know that I'm probably going to answer your question. Part of your question is how do Cambodians get deported? It's because they committed crimes as teenagers. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. parents had already became U.S. citizens. My mom probably became a U.S. citizen maybe a year before that, if I recall. Mm-hmm. So it basically gave me a sense of protection and our family protection. Mm-hmm. Um, although nothing is ever 100% guaranteed as we still see with this administration. But <laughs> a lot of... Um, a lot of the Southeast Asian folks that were committing crimes were minor. Mm-hmm. It could be marijuana. It could be shoplifting. Things that we did as teenagers. I mean, not all of us were angels. And then for years later, they've had families. They have jobs. They went to school, bettered themselves. And yet they're facing deportation orders for something that they did 20 plus years ago. Yeah, and I yeah. Done, and I think to myself, had this Kmart loss prevention supervisor, I've never told this story before, had the supervisor decided, like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to punish this 14-year-old kid, this brown Asian kid, and I might have a record, and my parents uh, did not have citizenship. I think I could possibly be facing deportation. Yeah. And yeah. It, it kind of tells, and I had to look back on that, deeply because I am very privileged. I'm mm-hmm. privileged to have parents who were already U.S. citizens. I was already privileged to be born in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I um, had enough of a strong upbringing because I had great teachers around me that were my mentors that it did prevent me from getting into further trouble. But I thought to myself, man, a lot of folks did not get that benefit of the doubt and Mm -hmm. they fell through the cracks, but we're still trying to get out of it. And yet they're still being punished for it and their families. So, which I think begs the question of how do our own community members get deported in the way that they are now? And for what reason? And where do you come in? Because you became one of the founding members along with Sina Sam and a number of other uh, Cambodian leaders to start this group called the Kamai Anti-Deportation Advocacy Group. So I wanted to uh, share, wanted you to share your experience with this group and what started it for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, to put it into the context of these refugee kids coming to America, we all came here as legal residents, legal permanent resident aliens. We all have the cards, right? Um, 
when you receive that status, not knowing too much about the immigration and justice system here, from my experience with my with my peers, we all thought we were U.S. citizens. I th our assumption was that these legal permanent resident alien status was as good as being a U.S. citizen. No one in our community had resources or had any guidance or had any men mentors to tell us, hey, you guys are not citizens yet. You guys are here permanently as legal residents. But no one told us if you commit a petty crime, you commit theft, if you get in a fight and get convicted for fourth degree assault, you might be con you might be con if you get convicted of a crime, you could be deported. None of that. There was no knowledge of that at all. So as kids, even if the, you know, even if we knew that, it wasn't a reality, right? Because deportation wasn't a thing <clears throat> until the 1996 crime bill. But anyways, that's neither here nor there yet. But imagine, like you say, being a kid, you're going to a store, you don't have any money, you want some now later, you're going to steal it. You know, I'm guilty of that as well. I got caught stealing too, you know, candy. Just being kids, 12, 13 years old, man, with no money and just around people with that have no money either. So what do you do? You just get in trouble as kids. It just happens that way. Um, that leads us into our situation today. A lot of these crimes that's committed are deportable crimes. And, you know, the list of deportable crimes and non-deportable crimes, each case, each individual case, each situation is different. There's no cookie cutter, one size fits all remedy to this. You know, as you can see, we have we have a total of three Cambodians who got deported uh, and are now back. Two of them were legal residents, mm. but their crimes weren't deportable anymore. The like the the crime used to be deportable, but not anymore. Under the because laws change all the time with new legislation and new leaders, right? So, what was the um, crime that uh, was no longer deportable? You know, I couldn't tell you. I have to look up the uh, the article on the case. But this last one, Soku just came back. He's a U.S. citizen, but he never got documentation of that because one oh. of his parents, one of his parents became a U.S. citizen. And I I thought it was two both your parents that needed um, to get citizenship. That's, they call it the derivative citizenship. But I guess only one at that time. If you're under 18 and one of your parents become a citizen, you become a citizen too. He never got documentation of that. So he got deported. He'd been in Cambodia for five years. He just came back like recently. So that's something new I learned too. But to answer your question, how did the Khmer anti-deportation advocacy group start it? We, it started out of an emergency. Last year, 2019, no, 2018, in November, Seven, our, seven of our community members right here in Tacoma, Seattle area we got picked up by ICE in a raid. And um, Cena hit me up. We got to do something. <laughs> I was like, what are we going to do? I had no idea how to fight this thing. And Bang Mani, he's our senior advisor. He's been fighting his deportation since 2001, 2002. Oh, and he's gosh. one of the original ones that was, you know, targeted for deportation for his crimes, but he was, um, out of the three, he, he was the only one that was able to stay. And he's still fighting it till this day. You know, he's, st uh, he's still fighting to get some of his misdemeanors and minor convictions um, expunged or vacated, but um, he, he's the first one to beat it. So we got connected with him. And we just talked about all the options. So we, we got a list of names. And they were luckily, not luckily, but the Northwest Detention Center is right here in Tacoma. 
So we were able to reach out to each one of the families. And then, um, you know, we're learning as we go, too. This is our first time doing this. So we kind of talk to them. We have lawyers at the Northwest Immigrants Rights Project who's working so diligently hard every day and the Seattle Clemency Project. So we got connected to these wonderful, wonderful advocates and organizations and lawyers that are most of the time working pro bono for our people. So we kind of strategize on what to do. You know, there's different avenues for different cases. You can vacate your conviction. If, if you have a state conviction, you can vacate it within the state. Um, you can get a pardon from the governor. If you get a pardon, that's good too. But if you have a federal crime, any drug charges are federal, that's almost impossible to fight. You know, it's a federal is this administration. Whereas um, in a couple of our cases, we got a couple of pardons because these convictions was strictly in Washington state and our governor was able to hear their cases and say, okay, we're going to offer you a pardon because this crime was done a long time ago. You were a kid and you redeem yourself. You're an electrician now, or you're, uh, you know, you're a roofer now, you have a family, you just bought a house. So I'm going to pardon this crime. And after you pardon the crime, it goes to the federal judge for the final, um, for the final word on to get your order of removal, like deleted. So it's it's a long process, and it's a long process. It's different for everybody, and it's really exhausting. It's super exhausting mm-hmm. for the families, especially, to go through that trauma. And and while we're going through this on the outside, they have family members on the inside, you know. And and ICE, you know, they're really they're really assholes, man. They don't tell you where they are. They'll move you to another ICE facility, and tell them, you know. So it's 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 a it was. The, the group, advocacy group, advocacy group formed out of an emergency and urgency that our community needed. And then after we got, um, so we had a total of seven in 2018. We were able to, to help three of them stay with their families. Mm. So that was our first round. Our, so our second round, we was four for four, like the mm. fucking Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're pretty, um, we celebrate our, our, our you know, our little victories, but the overall war is, is ongoing. Mm. And it's, um, what I like, what I love about the group is that we all know that this is really taxing on our bodies and emotion and our mental. And every one of us has families, got mm-hmm. kids to tend to. And this is just what we do. And we don't, we, and we do it for free. We do all this stuff, you know, it's, it's out of a need. And we feel like I feel like I'm in a privileged position to do it, so why not? Because no one's going to do it for us. Um, I'm just speaking for me, but this group is just so, they're on point, they're so smart, and so great to work with. Because sometimes I'd be like, man, this is too much. I'll take a a week or two off, and it'll just be fine, you know? And we're we're here to support each other. Oh, thank you so much for sharing this experience, but also just doing so much to be there for those family members and the people who are under incarceration. Yeah, I cannot I imagine. A lot of patients, man. Uh, it's as soon hard. As you find out. Yeah. Sorry to cut you it's, off. Yeah, no, it's okay. I, it's astounding because I do check the Kamai, uh, the anti the Kamai anti-deportation Facebook group. And yeah. I have, you know, checked up on your feed and sometimes I'll see art news article. 30 Cambodians are now facing deportation orders. There's like rounding up of groups. Well, and it's not just deported in December, just past December. 
it, it's it's exhausting when I see this happening. It just becomes a roundup of mass groups, mm-hmm. and it's happening so quickly that your community group and lawyers and other, you know, uh, anti-deportation advocacy groups, immigration groups are having a hard time keeping up because it's happening so suddenly and ICE is really starting to uh, take up a few more steps ahead because the strength of our communities that are now voicing the anti-ICE, the anti-ICE movements, they are very caught on. So they're like, okay, you know, we've got to like start Mm -hmm. doing this quickly before they start catching up to us. So I I definitely see like a cat and mouse game. And I was speaking with Von Wen, who's an immigration attorney, and she spoke about that. It's like the more uh, community members are strengthened by this knowledge, ICE is under pressure to like, you know, try to come up with different tactics. Should that that stop us? No, absolutely not. I I do see hope in our communities that are starting to... um, protests but also community members who are sharing their stories for the first time and mm-hmm. and humanizing this humanizing what is happening because we think of crimes you should obey the law you should be deported but we're hearing the stories that come out of it you know we're mm-hmm. starting to realize that you know no human being should ever be made to be treated this way and I think this is only going to help elevate those voices, but it is a very dangerous time in our community as we speak. Mm -hmm. So when you're dealing with all these difficult losses in our community, especially when you aren't able to help um, this family or other families, what do you do in terms of how to work with them afterwards and do you still keep in contact mm-hmm. so yeah you know um we don't drive that the family drives that but i know that one thing we do is when we can't um we aren't able to help a family member stay with their family we do cry a lot <laughs> there's a lot of crying i mean i i mean cried at a pardon hearing when one of our community members got pardoned i mean it's just so taxing you know all the work that everyone did and his family coming out to support and just to hear that you know we recommend a pardon is even a victory is taxing enough and, uh, you know, I'm a cry. I cry all the time. But, you know, to answer your question, um, you know, some some families that we were able to to assist, you know, as soon as they're, uh, they're you know, the family members out and they and then they just recluse, which is totally fine. And they should, you know, after going through all that trauma and, and being detained for six, seven months and then you're finally out, you kind of want to not talk about it right why why you why are you going to re-traumatize yourself and your family to go through that again to talk about it and some are very strong they come out they come out they become advocates themselves because they've been through it and those are the most valuable and the most um uh advocates that we need to support those that were in detained and come out and have this uh resurgence of new energy to fight the system and I'm very proud of those people to, with the strength that they have because I know I couldn't do it. And um, one one thing that I'm proud of, not just our group, but the whole community here at large um, that's fighting ICE and the anti-deportation and all that stuff is that ICE is definitely feeling the pressure. Um, before they would deport Cambodians and they would just deport them now. The last few rounds of deportation, after they deported them, they 
put out a press release, which is unprecedented. We were surprised to see the first press release come out Mm -hmm. fucking ice and like, oh, shit. So that tells me, that tells us that they're feeling the pressure and they're trying to control the narrative. You know what I'm saying? Deportating is one thing, but when they put out a press release saying, oh, we made the streets safer, we deported 30 criminals and now everyone's safer. Are we really safer? You just deported somebody's grandfather who's 65 years old, been working 30 years at Boeing. You know what I mean? They don't say that. They say, oh, we just removed criminals off the street. The community is safer. That's the press release. So they're trying to control the narrative, and we can't let them do that. Which also begs me to ask you the next question, and now I just thought of it, is what has been your, uh, what has been the communication like with our own community in educating them about these deportations and bringing up this dialogue? Because because ICE will definitely try to control the narratives by saying, well, you know, that our community is safer as a result of these deportations. But our response, you know, your response mm-hmm. is, is, no, that is yeah. full on bullshit. Yeah. What, um, how do you educate our community members and, how, and what has the response been uh, for our community? Do you see improvements in people supporting anti-deportation of our own yeah. communities? Because I know like in the Vietnamese communities, they can be very conservative and, mm-hmm. and to, to an extent, even our own communities that definitely harbor a lot of their own self-loathing of our own community members mm-hmm. because they see parts of our community members is bringing shame so i was wondering well your own experiences yeah helping to change that narrative and that conversation with our own community well for one for us or for me i don't spend my energy trying to convince somebody that's not going to be convinced if if they see somebody worthy of deportation that's on them um if they're not going to try to help us fight you know for this this community member to stay with the family we don't need them they can go on their Facebook or Twitter and write whatever they want to do. I don't spend my energy on that. I spend my energy trying to convince the people and fight with the people who wants to fight. And what I'm really proud of is the community at large here, not just the Cambodian community, the Hispanic, Latinx community here, um, the, the Nigerian, you know, the Congolese community, everyone who's in this fight, um, we're pretty um, united. You know, if we need something, like we had a meeting with the Vietnamese community when the Vietnamese community was being targeted last year, too. And we and that's that's what we do. We we educate and we get together with folks who's down with the cause and spend our energy there. And what I'm proud of the Cambodian community specifically, you know, growing up, we were always taught to be passive, respect authority, don't speak up. It's a whole different generation, man. We're so, oh, yeah. You know, we're loud as fuck. ICE is scared <laughs> of us. They could put out the press release. We could put out a press release. We could. We got social media. We got Facebook. We got Twitter. We got everything. So whatever they want to do, we can counter, too. I think that's one of the uh, strengths of our group, the C- Cambodian or the Khmer Anti-Deportation Advocacy Group, because we're all tech savvy. We're all on social media, and we know how to counteract that narrative. So they're, they're no longer able to control our narrative. And everything so, they do is public, and we take that information, chop that shit up, say, no, this is what's really happening. Right on, brother. So what can folks do to elevate their voices to support the anti-incarceration and deportation of our own community members? What uh, do you think would be most effective for allies and uh, I think, to come in to help and support I think first work? and foremost that what if you want to get into this work or if you want to support us or you want to learn more, 
Um, do your own research, man. Talk to people who's been incarcerated, who's been detained. Uh, talk to organizations that's been um, fighting this for the past several years. And um, because the work that we're doing is already taxing enough, we don't have the energy to explain it to everybody to come right. to, to, you know, to our meetings or whatnot. Take some time. Take some initiative and learn about the history of Cambodians or, or you know, the, your community, whatever part of your community. And take some time and some effort to learn about their history, to learn how we got to where we are today. So when you do encounter the people in the movement, at least you have some kind of background and foundation so you can ask the right questions. So you're not, you know, taking more energy than what's needed. But you know, we we try to be as inclusive as possible. But when we hold our community meetings, it is in a private space. We want everyone to feel safe. You know, we don't want to tip off ice to where we're gonna be. Mm-hmm. Things like that, man. Um, I think education is important, man. Uh, educate yourself and read, and just talk to talk to people who you look up to and that inspires you. I wanted to bring up something that I've been sharing with other people in the past, and I brought this up in the Gaijin podcast when I was interviewing with with them back last year. And I brought up the meaning of art and how it was almost destroyed in Cambodia, but also we're seeing that threat happening in America as we speak. I mean, Trump in the first week of office wanted to cut uh, funding for the National Endowment of Arts. <laughs> yeah, NEA. <laughs> yeah. So, which which also brings me to this point here is you as an artist, you had established community spaces. You had done hip hop. You had been connecting with community members for a number of years. And, mm-hmm. and this was your way of connecting with them and to find, to create community amongst each other. Uh, when the deportations were happening within our communities, especially in your community in Tacoma, you had asked, folks and our community members to call, to jam the phone lines, Mm -hmm. to pardon the release of any of our community members. And I thought to myself, you know, these years of creating community spaces, this is what uh, fascist governments are afraid of. They're afraid of what art does to people, what it creates as a result. It Mm -hmm. creates these spaces where people start to feel like they have a stake in their own individuality, that they have a sense that they are fighting for something purposeful and meaningful. And, and, and so, which tells me that without what you have done as an artist and what so many artists have done, where can these community spaces be found? Where can I find community? Because um, when I look at the LGBTQ community that I'm a part of, or with other Asian American groups in Chicago, a lot of them are filled with artists. Mm-hmm. They're filled mm-hmm. with storytellers. They're filled with writers. And without that, none of this would exist. And when you need to call for action, you need community. Mm-hmm. And so I think about uh, about the release of of one of the community members as a result of community members stepping up and being like, no, we can't do this. And, and there's always been this perception for years that Asian Pacific Islander folks are just quiet. They're submissive. They're mm-hmm. not going to challenge authority. And right. that is not the case. So we're destroying that model minority myth. And art has been the driver for that. So I want to say that, yeah, because of what you have also done among with other artists, I think that that is 
an example that mm -hmm. we all have is that when in doubt, create art because right, right. there's a sense of community. You don't have to be Jean-Michel Basquiat or, <laughs> you know, Andy no. Warhol or, you know, or uh, Van Gogh. Just have art in saying something mm -hmm. and and something will follow. I mean, something's mm -hmm. gonna follow as a result of it. So I think that was a very good point, a good lesson to learn from what you've done is yeah. creating those community spaces, right? So I'm very proud of you for continuing to elevate uh, the voices of our community members and to have them have an opportunity to fight and to know that they can, you know, that they have a stake in finding deportations, but also reclaiming our narratives to know that we are here for a reason and that we deserve to be here. So yeah, I gotta say thank you to folks like you and to Sina and to our community members who've been really fighting so hard to make sure that our history is not going to be erased and that we're not gonna lose the people mm -hmm. um, as part of our history. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, like you said, art is really important. Art is close to the people. Art amplify the voices of the people, and it gives voice to the people that, that are voiceless. So it's so it's so important that you you, can, you know how important it is when it's the first thing that people authority wants to get rid of. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. absolutely. And I want to say, like, before we start wrapping up, as a father of two young kids, have you started talking to him about? their history and what do you hope to teach them as they get older um i haven't i really um I, my my son is 12 my daughter's 10 i haven't really um been able to or nor do i want to yet um to speak to them about the history because at this age i think as a father i have to allow them to discover and realize themselves and and figure out who they are first as as people I think um, my role as a dad and as a parent is not to kind of steer or tell them what to do or, to, you know, um, it's not to mold them into what I think they are or what they should be. I think my responsibility is to teach them to be kind, be useful, and for them to be able to grow up and be their best selves. And so once they discover who they are as a person, what they want to be and what they want to accomplish in life, and then all that extra stuff for me can kind of seep in there later. But right now, I think it's important for them to um, discover this themselves and, and instill some self-confidence and being able to make strong, smart decisions and just for them to be able to make as many mistakes as they can right now so they don't make them later in life. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm very liberal as a parent. You know, I, I allow them to be themselves, man. I don't have any... Um, restrictions too much you know as long as they don't go out there and kill themselves but as far as history going activism and all that stuff i think just as i did they will discover it on their own and whatever mm -hmm. their passion is i'm gonna help fuel it what does the world of salong chun look like for 2020 and also <laughs> uh, where can and where can uh, people you know follow uh, your journey especially uh, um, as you're doing work this year yeah you can follow me on my social media, I'm pretty active on both Facebook and Instagram, Twitter. But uh, uh, my website is at salongchun.com. You can find the links to our Cam Cambodian, uh, I mean, the Rescue Revolution and the Command Anti-Deportation Advocacy Group. The links are on my website at salongchun.com. But for 2020, you know, what's weird is that 
I'm a very poor planner. I don't know what's going to happen in 2020. But I, I do want to say that I um, opened up for Jizza already in 2020 from the Wu-Tang mm. Clan. And, oh, um, nice. And I'm, I also uh, was part of the production team for the City of Tacoma's Martin Luther King Celebration. And I'm very proud and honored and privileged to be part of that committee um, to celebrate, to help celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and, you know, those, those are my two highlights for January. I really don't know what's going to happen in 2020. Things just fall into my lap. I'm, like I said, I'm just so fortunate that people reach out and want to work with me. So um, I'm, I'm usually not the driver, but uh, I'm like the, the passenger seat with the shotgun and help mm-hmm. uh, navigate while, while somebody else drives. That's just my role. I think you're a really awesome passenger to sit next to, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you, man. And, and, you know, really looking back in the past, close to three years actually three years now um that we've known each other you become more like an older brother to me that i I can always bend to but i've also learned so much from your work and you know your your drive to really understand our community and also to open up dialogue of the most uncomfortable uncomfortable parts of our own of our own realities that we're dealing with as we speak, especially with the deportations, the incarcerations mm-hmm. that have been happening. And the fact that we are also at a critical time where we are now the torchbearers of our own, uh, of our own family legacy because mm-hmm. our parents are aging yeah. as we speak. Yeah. And some for other folks, some have passed on already. Mm-hmm. So we're at a critical time where the leadership now falls on our age group and then yeah. uh, we have a third generation that's growing up and learning and just starting to learn about themselves yeah. so i think the history will continue oh, uh, to evolve so yes it's going I'm to so continue confident to in the next no i'm sorry i i think uh, i just want to say I'm, I'm so confident in the next generation after us after me um, they're so much more educated. A lot of them is getting master's degrees, some even PhDs, and you're getting into grad school. I'm so proud of you for doing that. So the Thanks. more of our people that gets educated and come up and, and academically and artist-wise too, you know, look at look at our art scene, look at our Cambodian yes. music scene. It's just blowing up right now here in America. I mean, the homie Jay Chan's out in Cambodia. I was in Cambodia in April, and you mm. can't escape Jay Chan. I went to an island called Koh Tan Sai, the Rabbit Island. And the yeah. first song we hear is Selica by Jay Chan. Like, yo, man, this motherfucker is everywhere. <laughs> so the resurgence of our community as Cambodian, Southeast Asian as a whole is just going to improve, and I'm so excited to see what the next generation is going to do and how louder they're going to get. Mm. Amen to that. So with that said, I want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your experiences, your reflection, and your hopes, because what you've shared today is powerful. And I think it's a good reminder of the power that we have in our own voice. And once we start to realize the power of our own voice, 
it just gets louder. It doesn't stay quiet anymore. So thank you for reminding us of that. And Salang, thank you so much. I cannot wait to see what the rest of 2020 is going to look like for you. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> moving for and also moving forward. So good. Take good care of yourself and keep up the wonderful work that you do for our community um, across the U.S. Thank you so much, Brandy. I appreciate you having me on the second season of the Banmi Chronicles. Thank is it you. the second season? It is the second season. Congratulations. Congratulations on that, man. And um, I'll just leave you with this. Peace. Peace. Take care. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Bunby underscore Chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm-hmm.